Welcome to the Apollo Social Science Podcast, where we speak to people working in the borderlands between social science and healthcare. So in each episode, we hear about the work of someone working in this space, and uh, we ask them about three big ideas that influence their thinking and development. And our aim with this is to show different lenses of understanding health and healthcare, and to explore how ideas and theories can lead to changes in someone's research journey. So for this episode, we're turning the tables a bit and interviewing our previous host, Stephen Hibbs. So welcome, Stephen. Thank you, Lucy. Um, so to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you're working on at the moment? Yeah, sure. So I'm a haematologist by background, so that means I'm a doctor who works with uh, blood conditions. Um, so that's both blood cancers and um, other sort of blood conditions. So in particular, condition that I'm interested in from a research perspective is sickle cell disease. And my research focus is to, well, my research aim is to understand what would constitute good care for someone um, who's experiencing a sickle cell crisis in hospital and the avenues to achieve this. And I'm doing that um, hopefully starting any day soon. Once I get all the sort of final approvals, um, uh, that will be sort of through a, a mixture of interviews and um, observation and other ethnographic tools. Fantastic. So a nice range of qualitative methods. Um, brilliant. Okay. So I'd like to just ask you now about the um, first topic that you're bringing to the, um, to the episode today. So you've brought The Wounded Storyteller by Arthur Frank. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit about why you've chosen this? Yeah. Yeah. So I saw a little bit of background about where I was when this book came to me. And it came to me in a kind of cool way, actually. Um, I, so um, I was, um, I guess, as a junior doctor, kind of increasingly recognising how stories get lost in the business of medicine. And I remember particularly noticing this amongst older people, particularly people who had um, cognitive impairment, and how a lot of the sort of notes that people would write in the hospital histories they were taking when, when a patient came to hospital would be like, just would say something like, can't give any history, dementia, likely infection, plan, X, Y, Z. And you just thought, ah, oh, like, is there is there a person in that? Is, is there anyone there? And I remember becoming determined that I would always start a um, my hospital documentation with a story. So, so there was one man, for example, who now um, wasn't able to, to talk himself, but from his son, I learned that he used to love um, birds. And one time there was a, um, a swan that was blocking the A12 and no traffic could get past it. We just stand in the middle of the road. <laughs> and, um, and this guy's dad was great with birds and just got called in and came and lifted up the, the swan. And, um, and there was another time where a crow who he was looking after and he was showing to his son, he said, look at this crow that I've got, just suddenly um, hooked its beak onto his nose and wouldn't let go. Um, and he was still talking about how lovely the crow was, even as blood was flowing. Anyway, but like, um, so I just started my uh, little medical documentation with these stories because I thought, actually, when, when someone, you know, when someone comes to hospital, the, the clerking notes, so the first note you write, tends to be the thing people go back to, to say, oh, what's going on? And I thought, I want, I want to start with that. So that. Like, the other stuff is actually a bit important, but if we lose sight of that, then we can't really do anything else with it. So that was already kind of going on in my mind, and I was starting to realise that some of the things that I really found um, just, like, a bit empty or a bit dehumanized in medical practice 
were being spoken to for me by like fictional literature, basically by stories, and, and, and helping me to hear to be a better receiver of stories by immersing myself in really beautifully written stories. So if I could really see how rich a fairly normal looking life was in a in a fictional novel, then maybe I could be a better recipient of the stories that was in hospital. So this was kind of going on in my mind, and then suddenly um, a book comes through my door. This book, *The Wounded Story* by storyteller by Arthur Frank, which I only recently found out was sent to me by my auntie, but she sent it anonymously, I think, or by accident, um, and came through my door. And it was at a perfect time where I was really thinking, I want to do, I want to make something out of this. But I don't know, I don't know how to communicate to people that stories matter and not just sound a bit trite. Mm. Um, and so. This book, The Wounded Storyteller by Arthur Frank, is a sort of, it's like a theorization of how to think with stories. Um, so it's great that he says in the introduction where he says, that the, with, with, with this idea of narrative medicine, of thinking with stories, if you're not trying to analyze a story and take it apart and say, oh, what, what's, the, what's the point, what's the meaning? Mm. The story, it's like it stands alone. And if one story, if one story doesn't convey the message, he says, you, you just tell another story. <laughs> like, you, you keep thinking with stories. And there's so much in there that's, that's useful. He, I think one of the really useful bits is he points out how there's these three kind of master narratives um, of restitution, chaos, and quest. Um, and restitution is the story that we tell 99% of the time in hospital. It's yesterday you were well, today you're ill, tomorrow you'll be better. Um, mm. in some way or another, or tomorrow you'll be stable, or tomorrow we'll mitigate things. But the story is all about the professionals. The story is all about the old story the person used to have gets smaller and smaller and smaller, like that poor guy in hospital who everyone forgot about what mm. he was doing. And the story of the doctors and their shiny medicines and the therapists and whoever else is involved expands and expands and becomes their story. Whereas he suggests the story of chaos needs to be honored more. Um, and that's the sort of present tense suffering that's really hard to, to listen to. He says that's more like an anti-narrative. It's like just over and over again, someone um, just giving up pain and suffering and trouble saying, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And then quest is where you say, um, what am I going to become through this illness? And, and that's, he says, it is, is the only type of these stories where someone, the, the, the person with the illness, remains the master of their own story. Um, so I just found it incredibly liberating, um, stimulating, and it, it, it really helped me to make sense of a lot of what I've been thinking about in terms of stories and medicine um, in the preceding years. Mm. Um, I'm really curious. Um, the way in which, sorry, to take us back um, to something you said at the start, the way in which you introduce stories into people's um, medical records and into your documentation, how did you get a sense as to how that was received by other people who read the notes? Yeah, um, a bit. Um, I think some thought it was a bit quirky. Um, I didn't hear anything negative. I did have one um, sort of senior clinician, one professors, professors in the hospital, um, Kind of pointed it out to his team, not, not with me present, but someone passed this on to me to say, "I really like this. I'm mm. like this is um, this is you know this is onto a good thing." Uh, and so that was that was nice to hear, kind of indirectly. Um, but it felt there was a little bit of a kind of 
I guess I, I hoped a little bit to make others think, but it was mostly for me um, an act of resisting the pull towards dehumanization. And I didn't want mm. to, I didn't want to to do that. And so it, it was, I think it was mostly for sort of personal reasons that I felt, I don't just want to hear about this, but I want to, I want to show that this is the thing that frames my understanding of why this person is in hospital now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's fascinating. I love that. Um, I was just thinking about the ways in which I was having a conversation with someone the other day who is a current patient who can access their medical records right. online. Um, and the words that often get used in clinical records about, uh, say, patient denies such and such, denies right. a symptom. Like, well, I, I didn't deny it. <laughs> yeah. I just don't have it. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so, I, sorry, the point I suppose I was trying to make was that actually this really does matter. Yeah. It does matter. And even if, even if you think you're a, you know, a, a very objective medical professional, the ways in which you, the ways in which the information is like couched and mm. um, bracketed yes. is really important. Um, sorry, that's taken us slightly off path, no, but I, I'm really curious. So um, in the research work that you've done to date, um, not necessarily with participants, but in terms of, I guess, interacting with other researchers and navigating ethics and sponsorship and so on. Have you found that storytelling has, um, yeah, has become part of that for you? I think, um, yeah, I guess storytelling happens in so many different ways and contexts that, you know, we're kind of constantly telling stories of, you know, even if it's just to kind of quickly explain to someone why you're getting in touch with them, to try and quickly fill in a bit of plot for them to be like, you know, here's what's happened so far and here's why and this is where you come in. And, mm. you know, so, so that, that on that level, I guess storytelling is everywhere. I think it's a, um, I have found that um, I often, I often try and foreground stories more in, let's say when I'm doing teaching or when I'm um, sort of writing academically as well, I, I try to, think what is going to give this situation um what's yeah what's going to give it resonance and that's normally a story but also what's gonna um what's gonna foreground the experience and the voice of someone who's actually lived through the sharp end of this mm. um i'll speak about that a bit more later but but um but yeah i, I think i think i i do often use stories and there's another great quote in the book um which i just note down here by uh, Walter Benjamin, the um, sort of seemingly very multi-talented um, <laughs> writer who's got into all sorts of things I've, I've, I've read, but he wrote about stories in, in an essay. He said, a story preserves and concentrates its strength and is capable of releasing it even after a long time. And I think that's such a beautiful description of, of like a really good story of someone's experience, something that's happened, something that's real, um, can sometimes be enough to just change everything in a, in a conversation. And so actually when I come to thinking about what is my work going to um, achieve research-wise, it might just be that one single story or two stories in the whole of the years of the research are going to be the main contribution that mm. it makes, but they might have that preserved, concentrated power um, that continues to 
to exert its influence on 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 how sickle cell care is is done, and that mm. would be an exciting contribution to make. Mm. There's a sort of timelessness to um, to a story, right? And do you see um, storytelling as important in terms of um, social justice? The ways in which you were describing foregrounding patients and their experiences at the sharp end. Yes. Yeah. I think um, absolutely. It, it, it's you, you know you you do need facts and figures, and and sometimes a a, a sort of single research statistic can be deeply powerful. I mean, one I think of here is the fact that in one study of sickle cell um, crisis care in the US that people presenting with sickle cell crisis to an emergency department waited more than twice as long for their first dose of, um, of pain relief compared to someone presenting with suspected kidney stones even mm. though the former's pain scores were higher. Now that's that's a story but that's that's a story told through a piece of, piece of data mm. but I think actually to then have that alongside um, like yeah, to, to ha- have that alongside someone who's experienced, um, who's experienced injustice, and who is able then to um, to speak out of that um, out of that place to say this is what it's like, and listen um, can be immensely powerful. Again, in the sort of sickle cell um, context. Um, uh, a, a sort of collaborator who's um, helping with with the work that I'm doing now. Um, his his sort of stage name as a rapper is a star. Um, he he has um, sickle cell, and he opened a conference at the British Society of Hematology um, by performing a um, a rap song he he written um, hidden pain mm. about what it's like to go through sickle cell crisis, and there was a moral authority to it and a. And something changed in that moment. You, you know, the, the whole it was the, the very first thing that happened in this whole conference. And it to me it felt as though after that everything had to say be said in the light of um of what he had said. And mm. um and it, it yeah, that, that that was quite powerful to me, rather than it immediately being about just the pharmaceutical gravy train and mm. the look at our flashy science. There was there was something deep and real and um yeah, morally authoritative that came through his his storytelling in mm. that way. So very powerful. Um, it reminded me of something that one of our team members, Duncan Reynolds, um, was talking about recently um, about the. Um, so his work looks currently at um, AI in healthcare, um, and he was. Uh, discussing an idea that he'd read somewhere else about the um, anaesthetising qualities of um, numbers um, mm. and the phrase that was used was that that they uh, that like statistics or large data sets or so ever can perform a sort of um, uh, a mo- can be a moral anaesthetic wow um, so in discussions that he was having it was around um, how a uh, a long-term condition would be classified as such or not and mm. so if a person was a person's the disease that a person was experiencing was classified as a long-term condition they would be included within this program and this AI uh, and if they if they didn't then they were out right they might have a long-term condition which just yes yeah, sort of um, was uh, pushed to the margins um, and uh, yeah it was the rap that you described is sort of performing the 
whatever it is. How, how do you wake up from an anaesthetic? Right, yeah, yeah. What, 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 well, yeah. What's, I, the, uh, what's the drug that it, people use to bring you around? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think in general it just wears off. Um, oh, right. but, 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 um, <laughs> a but, moral anti-anaesthetic. But, but, but yeah, but it, it's like an antidote, isn't it, in that way? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, oh, that's such an interesting idea. Can I ask you, um, how has a... Because it sounds like your um, orientation towards storytelling kind of predates your research as well. How do you think storytelling and an orientation towards that has influenced your choice of methods and study design? I think, um, I guess to start with, just to have confidence that a qualitative approach is the right one, that, that um, we don't need more numbers to tell us that there's a problem, we know there's a problem. Numbers, can they help us sort of identify and locate where the problem is or what the solutions might be? Maybe, but uh, I haven't been clever enough to kind of work out how, if that's the case. So I guess just on that basic level of being like, I think a qualitative approach here is the right one. And I think as well to, to recognise that stories come everywhere. They don't just come from patients, they come from the staff who are struggling to work out how to care for someone under mm. all sorts of different conditions or they, they come from the bed manager who's got an impossible task or the or the guideline writer who's writing with kind of a whole bunch of uncertainties or you know, everyone involved and there's there's even stories that aren't just about individuals but are about how whole departments talk to themselves and develop a kind of a shared identity and, and purpose so I think mm. um, I think probably I don't yet have a kind of firm enough understanding about how things like narrative analysis or discourse analysis and all these things kind of vary from each other. I have a kind of basic understanding, but I think to just recognise that um, by understanding lots of parts of life as story, that potentially opens up new ways to to understand what's going on in, mm. in a complex situation. Mm. Mm, I love that. Um, thank you. Um, so the second um, the second text that you've brought that has had a major impact on your work is um, Righteous Dope Fiend uh, by Philippe Bourgeois and Jeff Schoenberg, um, which is a beautiful and very large looking tome, <laughs> <laughs> thankfully with lots of pictures in. So yeah, can you tell us a little bit about um, why you've brought this and how it's influenced your work? So um, this book was a very specific recommendation. So when I first started my PhD last November, I said to um, two of my supervisors, um, Deborah and um, Sarah, can you uh, recommend me an example of writing that you love in this field? Um, just so I can kind of get a sense of, of what it can look like. Um, and they each did, and both of them pointed out some blindingly good things to read. But Sarah's choice, straight away, without missing a beat, she was like, Roger Stofiend by Philip Bourgeois. <laughs> so I was like, all right, I'll go and read it. And it's an ethnography about, um, with, yeah, a, a, about drug using homeless people in, um, in the US. And it is beautiful. Um, so, so, so it's, it's uh, I, I guess it's beautiful for lots of reasons. It's beautiful because of their attitude of as researchers of, of living alongside um, people who don't often get to tell their story at all for I think something like eight years it was a very long project 
Um, it's beautiful because it involves a lot of um, photographs. So a lot of this is is kind of using photographic ethnographic methods as well. Mm. Um, and to, it, it's beautiful because probably eighty percent of the writing is descriptive, and only twenty percent or so is analytical. And mm. Again, back to the thing about stories, I guess it's it sort of coming back to that again. The thought that by going somewhere and carefully seeking to really listen, really listen carefully to the stories of the people who you're seeing, um, and then working out how to communicate those stories um, clearly and powerfully, that that does most of the work that um, an ethnography can do. An ethnography is sort of the, the, the kind of the broad frame in which my, my research is fitting in and I found that deeply inspiring and just to give you a kind of a, a sample of, of what comes up from from here so so um, I haven't had much contact with people who um, are homeless and using um, injecting heroin which is what this group is doing but one of the things that I've always struggled to understand is um, about needle sharing because I thought well there's free needles and mm. um, It'd be so bad to get HIV or so bad to get Hep C or whatever. Um, just, you know, I haven't thought, I've just thought, it just, it, it's not kind of a judgment of being like, oh, you know, why is that happening? It's just more like, why, why is that happening? Mm. You know, what, what, where does that come from? And um, I'll just read you a bit here that, that they're talking about the moral economy um, in this um, group of people who, who use heroin and who live together in this kind of homeless encampment. Mm. Um, and I'll just read you a paragraph here. So this, this is following quite a long period where they are reporting their field notes, which are great, but um, are quite explicit, and I won't read those bits now, but just, just a bit underneath, it says here, initially we thought that the homeless constantly pulled money in shared ancillary paraphernalia out of their economic necessity when injecting heroin. They were generally unable to raise enough money to pay for a bag of heroin alone before beginning to feel withdrawal symptoms. When the, bag, when the price of bags dropped threefold, however, from $20 to $7 during the second year of our field work, sharing did not decrease. We realise that cooperating to purchase bags is not simply a pragmatic, economic or logistical necessity, it is the basis for sociality and establishes the boundaries of networks that provide com companionship and also facilitate material survival. The sense of community and mutual obligation among network members offers some insurance against dope sickness, which is the sort of withdrawal symptoms. Mm. Um, when members of the Edgewater Boulevard scene began injecting alone too frequently, and refused offers to pour money to buy her and they were accused of being selfish and risked becoming socially isolated. And at other times they kind of talk about how this is idea of the cotton, which is the last bit of kind of cotton wool at the bottom of a syringe that often has a little bit of kind of heroin left in it that you can just about squeeze out. And often the, the donation of your cotton to someone who was on the verge of dope sickness mm. was a way of, of solidarity, of, of like actually, of kindness, of, of like, um, looking out for one another and mm. that to me was like just one of those moments where as well as kind of learning about this specifically I was like okay wow that is the power of ethnography because you could not you could not access you know you couldn't do an interview to work that out you couldn't do a you couldn't do a like some quant some quantitative like addition of how many needles could get you know none of it would make sense but just by sitting there and watching and listening and spending years and years and years of going hang on a minute this isn't about oh, we haven't got enough needles, or oh, oh, there's not a kind of needle clinic up the road or whatever. Yeah. This is about saying, this is the way that we we show kindness to each other so that when I'm the one who's on the floor and retching in pain because I'm in dope sickness, someone else is going to look out for me. Uh -huh. um, and there's like insights like that that just come over time and time again in this book. And I think, yeah, I, I've, I've just been blown away by thinking, 
I'm so glad I'm doing ethnography because this is the, the sort of surprises, the surprising insights that you can get mm-hmm. um, and how beautiful the writing is. Yeah, that's yeah. gorgeous. Um, that's wonderful. It's a, such a great example. Um, you're using, you're going to be using ethnography with your um, participants with sickle cell. That's right. Um, and this is an area that you've been working in for quite a t- quite some time. Um, and how have you sort of what have you thought through about um, what you may or may not find surprising? So that um, insider outsider perspective, given that you're already part- partially in this yes. community, yes. not as somebody with sickle cell, but as somebody who works very closely with people with sickle cell. Yeah, yes, good question. And I guess the the sort of fear in my mind is, can I sort of I think the, the word is like denaturalize things enough to actually mm. see them fresh. Um, don't know yet. I think I will, but um, <laughs> I hope so. Um, yeah, I think I have written down a few lists of things to be like, I really want to see how this happens of like, um, oh, let, let, me, let me give a, a particular example actually. So, so a few years ago, um, another person who is a sickle cell who I've worked with um, on a few projects um, who has taught me so much about what it is like to have sickle cell um, and what some of the problems around hospital care are. Um, Probably the the most powerful way she taught me actually was that she was coming to speak at a conference session I was organising about her experiences. And then um, before she was able to speak, went into crisis um, in a hotel room and I accompanied her while we rang the ambulance, waited for the ambulance, took the ambulance, went through A&E, um, went through the, the ward, and um, it was probably about five hours. And it was the most sort of perspective-changing experience mm. I've ever had, particularly in sickle cell, but probably generally. It was, I guess in a sense, it was like a foretaste of ethnography, actually. Like, I, you know, I didn't necessarily know that word at the time, and I definitely, all I was thinking was, I really, she needs some pain relief right now, and this is horrible to watch, but it was, a completely different perspective and so I think um, I'm not really asking you, answer your question that directly of like what's going to surprise me but I, I guess just to say that that those few hours the amount they changed every part of my perspective from that time on mm. makes me think okay I don't know if I'm going to have five hours like that again mm. but like that is just a utterly different perspective from what my doctor's eye view of being in a hospital and coming to see someone for 10 minutes and then going away to the next patient. It's mm. so different, so, so, so different in so many ways. The perspective about time, about like how different statements that people make that sound straightforward, but actually just feel utterly wrong. You know, they just clatter. They just clatter because you just think, can you not see what, what's happened these last couple of hours? Or, um, yeah, so many things um, that that um, I, I think about that that experience a lot. So, mm. yeah, I, I guess that was like my foretaste of ethnography, mm. and um, I don't know, but I feel confident that there are going to be a lot more times like that mm. in the coming years. Mm. Where you're not the the problem solver or the person who has to take action, but you're right. the person sitting alongside and being with. Yes. Yeah. And then maybe that's one of the important things actually, because yeah, the the inability to find some solace by doing a, a job um, 
was excruciating. Mm. Like, I mean, that's the wrong word to use because I was sitting next to someone who was actually excruciating pain. But, but like, it was extremely difficult to know what to do with myself. You know, just I did a lot of pacing up and down because, mm. uh, and and I think it also helped me get, have a bit more compassion for relatives and people coming in in that situation because, yeah, when you're next to someone who's in desperate pain, mm. like, yeah, seconds feel like minutes, and minutes feels like hours, and, and the rest of it, and. Whereas when you're when you're a doctor, you've got stuff to do and you've got a whole list of jobs and you know all of these things sort of dull you, numb you to, to what's what's going on there. Mm, mm. Sounds like you're well set up for your ethnography. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, just before we move to your um, third topic, which is a bit of a broader one than a specific text, um, these are two uh, beloved books of yours. Um, is there something that I've failed to ask that you would like to talk about? <laughs> Well, that's a very generous question. Um, I like that. Um, I think perhaps it's not that you failed to ask about it, but maybe one more thing I'd just say about um, stories generally is um, their power to, um, as well as to help us be better hearers of our patient stories, perhaps it's not a different thing, but just they are part of the defamiliarization of the ordinary and the everyday. But like, um, that if you read a really good story, or indeed a really good ethnography, I think, then you can come into a situation you've been coming in and out of for years that looks like, in inverted commas, a boring case through a medical lens, mm. like a, a, a samey case. And suddenly it's huge. Like suddenly, um, I'm trying to think of, of, of where, where that quote. Oh, yeah, it's from it's from that beautiful novel by Marilyn Robinson Gilead, where um, uh, the, the the main character um, John Ames says something like, um, "Every every place you look can shine like um, illumination. Um, only who would have who would have the courage to see?" Uh, and I love that to, to think like the lives of everyone we meet could be like this this kind of richness of all of human experience. Is likely to be contained. You know, you know, the mysteries of what it is to be a human is contained in this one being before mm. you, who's presented with the the headline is is dull and you've done it a million times. But if you look at if you look beyond that, even a little bit, suddenly there's this deep pool of of everything it is to be human. Mm. Uh, and um, yeah, stories are really good at that. Mm. Yeah, and that's the beauty of qualitative research is that you get into the thick, detailed illuminating stories right. of, um, of so-called everyday people. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, wonderful, thank you. Um, so for your third topic, um, you've chosen something that's yeah, a little bit broader, which is um, co-production um, in research, which is a bit of a hot topic at the moment. So yeah, let's hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, okay, so um, yeah, this is, I thought about selecting like an example of this, but I don't feel like there's just like one I, I really, really wanted to choose here. But for me, the, the story here, again, kind of goes back a number of years. I, I remember being um, a academic F2 or F1 or something like that, kind of straight, straight out of... Um, out of medical school and doing, working on systematic review, working on some quantitative um, research, which was which was interesting, and I'm, I'm extremely grateful for that opportunity, but sitting down at a kind of research meeting with someone who was doing a priority setting partnership with the James Lind Alliance mm. on cleft lip and palate, and um, it was like one of those conversations where like, 
you just feel like you're talking to like someone who's opening this new world to you. Because this person was like saying to me, oh yeah, like we, we're looking at and all the surgeons wanted to know, oh, is it this surgical technique or this one, or do we use this type of like vicral sewing stuff or this type of, you know, like it was this thing. And actually when we talked to parents, it was which, um, which interventions help my child to, um, to get on best at playtimes in the playground or, or, or like stuff like this, which for me was just like, whoa, like to even start to like in, increase, like, I don't know, widen the, um, the view of medical research to taking in questions like that. But the way they were doing it by getting different stakeholders in the room and saying, okay, what, what matters? Mm. And so I went back to my, um, went back to my supervisor at that time and, and said, can we do this? And, I, I, and we did, we did this with um, blood transfusion, blood donation, and it was really a really exciting process and, and um, took ages, but was really, really good to do. And from that point on, just kind of thinking, okay, well, in, in, in research context, this idea of co-production of like, kind of, yeah, just starting to, to say, okay, well, what really does matter? Like, do we really have a good sense of that as kind of people who randomly fallen into academic positions? Like, do we actually know what the important questions are? Maybe we do, but maybe quite often we're gonna be surprised when we open it up. So that was kind of the first thing. And then the second thread in this, um, one of my best friends is a remarkable woman called Caitlin, who is now a priest, but was a community organizer at the time. And um, she was she was living um, uh, with, with me and my family at the time. And um, when she was community organizing, we would hear so much about how she'd go about this. We'd go to some of the assemblies that she organized where they'd bring along like local politicians and they'd it would not be the community organizers who were the ones who were coming up with the questions and who were saying, hey, what are you going to do about this? Or, or like, who were, but it would be real people presenting real stories and saying, this is what's going on on your patch. What do you say to that? And, and then each candidate would have to respond. And then more than that, they weren't allowed to give vague answers. The person leading it, who'd often be someone of comparatively low status in a lot of these situations would say, but hang on a minute, specifically to this, yes or no? And they would, you know, and these would be the, the people who were gonna be getting power soon. So, mm. um, and I remember just kind of thinking, wow, like this is, this is even more radical again than, than what I'd seen with the James Lindsay Alliance project. Mm. Um, and so I started experimenting with this a little bit in, in some teaching context. So one time I was asked to, to speak about sickle cell disease to a group of um, general medical doctors um, at a, a hospital and without telling them actually, I, I invited along um, someone with sickle cell disease. And so when they all came in to sit in the room, this person who they'd often seen in a hospital gown in, in a bed on, on the ward was now the one sitting in the, the, the chair. And I said to everyone, hi, thanks so much for inviting me. I thought actually, I, I can't do a very good job at this. So I've invited someone who can. Um, and uh, that was remarkable. Just seeing, um, seeing this person speak so clearly, so powerfully, um, at the start, even just talking about her job outside the hospital and saying about what was really quite a complicated and technical job, and clearly none of the doctors in the room understood what the job was. <laughs> and it was suddenly like, you know, you just felt the power dynamic go and, and then at the end of it, I remember after she'd spoken about what it was like to have sickle, but also what it was like to come to hospital with it. Um, the moment I knew that this was something with a different power was, um, a junior doctor very courageously at the end when I sort of asked her questions put her hand up and said I just want to say I'm sorry I'm really sorry for how I've spoken to you in the past and other people in um, who've come with sickle cell crises and um, I want to do better and I just thought wow, wow like 
that could never have been achieved mm. by anything that I had to say. Um, so those are kind of a few of the like threads. And I guess now just saying, okay, well, look, if I'm really committed to this, then what's this going to look like in practice? Now I start doing my research as I look to present it, as I look to write about it. Um, how is this power sharing going to work? Mm. Um, so far, I've, I've got this great group of people who are, who've been helping me at, on all the steps so far, but I, I need to, I need to keep thinking about this and doing it and, and actually, um, yeah, kind of trying to do this as meaningfully, um, and radically, I guess, as, as possible. So that's, yeah, that's the mm. idea there. From what you've described so far um, and all of the, the things that you've brought to your research, it sounds like you are um, very well aligned, something about your um, your work history and your interests and um, your positionality as a researcher um, make you very uh, adept, perhaps, or have drawn you to co-production. Um, so what advice would you give to a researcher in a similar position to you so just stepping into qualitative research um, early on in a PhD perhaps um, who's interested in getting into co-production but perhaps hasn't had the same amount of life experience um, that you've had through your clinical work in um, navigating relationships with the people who are going to be uh, participants in yeah. your research. It's a really good question and I think that yeah there is a this definitely has been like a long journey for me it's not yeah I, I think I would not felt as confident to immediately work with people in the way that I am I mean I, I actually just even more practically than that like to the people on my patient advisory group people who I've worked with for years in other ways and so there's a, there's like specific relationships as well as I guess maybe more confidence in co-production generally I think the two pieces of advice I, I give would be like start somewhere and like it doesn't even if to start with it's just like if kind of opening up all of your research for scrutiny and to be on the table to others feels like too much then maybe just starting off by choosing a part of it where you think actually I could really do with some help in thinking this through and I think you can quite quickly build up confidence from from that mm. I think the other thing is just that there's it is about it is about power sharing and justice and trying to push back against the traditional hierarchical power structures within research. But it's also about expertise and about saying like, it would be ridiculous for me to try and take on this project as someone who has never known what it is to experience excruciating pain to the mm. extent that someone with sickle cell has, who has never known what it is like to be looked down on because of the color of my skin, has never known what it's like to be in a patient doctor situation where you, you can feel the pressure of power coming in the direction. Like so many things where I don't have an insight. Like so, so I could list off so many more. Um, and just, yeah, there's just so many things that have come up where I've just thought I did not even think about that. Like, um, I'll give you a really, really simple example. I, d I did a video to, um, to explain to participants about um, what my research might involve. Um, shared it with my patient advisory group and wanted to just point out, you look really scruffy in that video. You look really scruffy. You don't look professional, and that you know, do again. Like, and um, I was so grateful because in hindsight, I did. I look back at, and I'm, I'm a, I'm a kind of scruffy guy. You know, I was kind of enjoying the the whole thing about like, oh yeah, now now it's um, now um, you know, 
I'm, I'm going to the university, I don't have to wear a shirt every day. And, um, <laughs> but actually, I had a really good point. Like to, to a lot of people that me wearing a t-shirt and not really, just not really haven't thought about that was not a good look. And, mm. and um, you know, that, that you don't necessarily need lived experience for that, but that, that I, I kind of feel like no, none of my research supervisors were going to say that. No, no, no one else was going to pick up on that. Mm. But someone who was going to shoot from the hip and be like, nope, mm. you know, don't, don't do that. Yeah. Like, that's amazing. And, and, and so I guess my other piece of advice to someone is to be like, you really need it. Like, you, you, I don't think, unless you're in a, I guess unless you're in a really specific topic where it's not about lived experience at all or where the lived experience exactly overlaps with your own and even then you've got one experience but like in almost every situation like you're gonna run into so many more problems if you don't um or just not maybe not put it that way positively you're gonna miss so many opportunities if, mm. if you don't do this and mm. your research will be so much better if you do so i think there's a there's a, a sort of moral imperative but I think there's also a really pragmatic quality of research um, mm. drive here as well. Mm, it will make your research better. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you. I think that's really valuable advice. Um, can I ask you a question now um, kind of more broadly, um, so not specific to the topics that you've brought but um, you've obviously got a lot of ideas um, and you're drawing on a lot of sources. Um, and um, one conversation that I've had with other researchers moving into qualitative research and social science has been, well, there's such an overwhelming amount of um, different types of uh, method, methodological avenues I could go down or, um, you know, a number of different theories. How do, you know, I feel overwhelmed with all of this. And a provocative question that I saw um, that I read the other day was, um, what if you could... Uh, only subtract to solve a problem. So, faced with the problem of uh, perhaps too many methods, too many theories, too many interesting routes to pursue, um, how have you decided what to subtract from your research so hmm. far? Uh, yeah. Um, the reason for the sigh is that <laughs> I've got a feeling that the answer is very ineffectively. Um, and, and at some point in the next couple of years, um, it's going to dawn on me that, that a lot more subtraction is happening. But um, let's stay positive and say what I have subtracted. Um, so I think, first of all, the thought that I'm going to like have this systematic understanding of everything that's been done so far. Like I meet a lot of PhD students who are doing a systematic review in their first year. I don't want to do that and I don't mm. I don't think it's gonna you know I think the review I've done I've read a lot but I haven't read everything and if I was to try and read everything I couldn't do what I want to do um, because it would take up so much of my time so on that level just kind of being like reading enough but not not aiming for um, yeah not, not pretending that there's been kind of completely comprehensive thing I'm not even gonna try and publish a, a kind of Here's my systematic review or whatever. It's just, yeah, that, that's already something that I've kind of said, no, that's not a priority. Mm. Um, there's certainly been other things where I've thought, oh, it would be really interesting to look in all the textbooks to see how sickle cell crises are taught about in those. And um, I've had helpful little voices from different people saying, oh, that sounds like a good project for someone else to do. Um, <laughs> and so I think, uh, I think trying to like take that sort of, um, that sort of advice on forward. Um, yeah. And then, what else? I guess, I guess just kind of already being, 
coming to peace with the fact that my research aim is to understand what constitutes good sickle cell care and um, the avenues to achieve this. But it doesn't involve following those avenues through it yet. It doesn't involve um, making the changes yet. Um, but actually I can, I can focus on doing a really deep dive and taking my time to do that. Um, even just having that is really helpful because mm. I think when I initially started writing, my enthusiasm was to like find something and then do something and then, you know, and actually mm. just be like, no, this is a really big question and I'm going to try and get it, it really comprehensively. That's enough to, mm. to, to focus on. Um, so yeah, I would say there's probably some more subtraction that needs to come, <laughs> but those would be some of the, some of the initial ways I'd bring that. Fantastic. If there were, um, not to be too reductionist about this, but if there were one um, overarching or takeaway message that you would like um, listeners to uh, to go home with as a result of what you've said today, um, is, there, is there one thing that you could pin down? Um, maybe just that I didn't plan to be doing any of this when I left medical school. And I thought at various points I would be a clinical trialist or I'd be a medical missionary, or I'd be um, a clinician who just did pure clinical work or different things. And whilst there's been, you know, there's just been a huge amount of like serendipity or providence or whatever way you're going to frame it along the way of like the stuff I've come across, um, I guess maybe to just like those things are valuable when, when you're reading something or when you're hearing something, you think like, like that conversation with a guy who was talking about cleft lip and palate um, or like, um, I don't know, when I heard the guy's story about the crow biting his nose, and I thought, this needs to be written down. But like, just, just to kind of, I guess, if, if there's anything that, that um, someone in a very different situation might take away, it might just be to be like, okay, well, what's that thing for you? Like, look, like, where have you suddenly felt your ears prick up? And it's not been like a natural research project or like, okay, well, what am I going to do next? Like, it took, you know, it's taken me more than 10 years from finishing medical school to land on a research question and mm. to do something like this but like I wouldn't have got there if I hadn't followed all of these kind of slightly twisty paths that didn't necessarily look like they were going anywhere and some of them probably haven't like um but yeah so, so, so maybe just just follow those little sort of curiosities and moments where you think so, okay this, someone's onto something here like, like let me go and we're going to have a look at that and mm. see if it might just change a tiny bit in your practice tomorrow. Mm. Um, and maybe that will go somewhere. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Following your curiosity. That's fantastic advice. <laughs> Thank you. Um, wonderful. I'm just going to ask you one more time. Um, now we've talked also about co-production. If there is anything that I have failed to ask you that you'd really like to talk about. Nope. nope. It's been great. Wonderful. Um, so thank you very much, Stephen, for a fascinating and, um, yeah, curiosity-inducing um, conversation. So I um, hope it's been useful to you, the listeners, and um, you can check in with us at our Apollo Social Science website. Um, you can subscribe to the podcast on um, Spotify, and please feel free to comment. Um, and perhaps tune back in for another episode to hear from um, another member of the team, uh, or perhaps in the future some qualitative health researchers from other institutions or organisations. So thank you very much for listening.